Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And this week we are bringing you, by complete happenstance, the theme of tragedy in trios. Yes, because I've actually been working on this case that I'm going to present you today for several weeks because I read um, the only book that is written about it and then tried to find some old-timey newspapers for it as well. So it was just just one of those things that I've been working on periodically. Then all of a sudden I was complete with it. It was like, okay, I can sit down and write a script now and happen to text Amber like, hey, this is what my case is about. And as it happens, my case has three victims and her case this week has three victims. We're so in tune. We really are. That's We just non-verbally planned it. We do. And it worked out. I know. We're pretty convinced that we were born out of the same womb yes. anyway. And I was the bigger twin. We've just discovered that must be after all the pressure. My my parents couldn't take care of two, so <laughs> they, they gave me up. Gave her up. Yeah. We've pieced it all together. She weighed a little bit more at birth than I did, so they were probably like, We can't oh, we feed can't her. We can't keep the bigger one. You yeah. Know, I I don't know. It really seems like they would have got rid of me, though. I was four pounds, so... <laughs> like, she's higher she's, risk. Right, right. This one's unhealthy. <laughs> I think we should discard this one. <laughs> but anyway. So that's... But the universe brought them. us together again. Yes, so, I forgive them, so... Yeah, they they really are wonderful people. Shout out to my mommy and daddy. Hi, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> it's your long-lost dad. <laughs> Oh, forget the oh, fact that you great. were born in June and me November right. of the same year, but it was a weird pregnancy. That's another the, reason. They couldn't handle the press on it all. And birth dates could have easily been fudged back then. True. I mean, way back then. Yeah, no. way, way back then. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. So I'm going to bring you guys an, a little bit of an old-timey case, but... The, the book that is written on it was in 2018, and I found it really fascinating. There's not a ton of information besides this single book because this is the story of the 1937 murders of three young girls in Inglewood, California. Now, the author of the book, Little Shoes, The Sensational Depression-Era Murders That Became My Family's Secret by Pamela Everett was written. She is a lawyer. She is now a law professor and a former journalist. She did not know that her family had a tragic, tragic murder happen of two of her aunts until she was 15 years old. So she discovered this dark family secret. She did. And then it wasn't until into adulthood when she became a lawyer that she really started digging deep and Mm -hmm. found out all kinds of things and it's a great book you guys it is written in first person because this is her journey of learning about her family I'm not gonna steal those potatoes mm-hmm. I'm gonna give you the case so I'm giving you the information from the book and I am gonna cite of course as we always do we cite our sources in the show notes uh, so you'll be able to find it the potatoes that she puts in there about her I own love that they're potatoes journey <laughs> I just, you know, the carrots. I just, I like the, the delicious potatoes. taters. Listen, 
The carbs are my favorite part of the meal. So in her, that was actually almost my favorite part of the book is her personal journey through it all and what okay. her insight was. It's it's really really profound to read that, but. I obviously started it because I was in it for the true crime. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know about the murders and then got so much more when you realize she had no idea that her, that she had two aunts. There's two aunts to her father's family that she knew nothing about. So she had to go digging because this was a deeply buried family secret. Oh, so did she unravel this she on did. her own? She oh, did. Wow. And the bulk of it is, and, and I'll give you all her facts that she did throughout all of her research. And remember, since she's a lawyer and a law professor, she went through meticulously all of the court documents, and there were thousands of pages of them. And she was able, because of her education, to highlight some wrongdoing and some suspicion here. So essentially what we have is what she believes to be the wrong person convicted oh, no. of her aunt's Murder? Murders. Her, to her, oh, both of her aunts. Wow. They, they lost two little girls. So both of her aunts And they murders. got the wrong guy. Yeah, she firmly believes it. I'm going to give you... So that's that's the stuff I'm going to bring you is the, the case, you know, mm -hmm. the story of the case. But She's keeping her, her potatoes and yep, we're going to hear... Go, go buy her book. For okay. that. I, you know, I really want to yeah. highlight that. Go read that personal um, encounter of what it did for her family. So anyway, that's kind of a brief overview of what you're going to find today. Depending on how long we get to, we may break this up into two parts, but don't worry. If you're a Patreon, you get both of them right away, as you always do. And you guys have already heard all this because you guys get you cases. You know how we do. They do. And they get the cases early. So yes. they've heard this way before the general population is hearing this. So they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're two cases ahead of that already. But we won't make you guys wait till Thursday because Amber has a case for you this week, too. So if we do break this up into two parts, don't worry. You will get part two on Tuesday, and you'll end up just having three cases this week. Yeah, this, this is exciting. The fate is in your hands. You're like, if I feel like yeah, it, we'll see. I'll finish. We'll see how saucy I'm feeling mm -hmm. after a while. Well, we'd like to try to keep our episodes around an hour or so, 45 minutes to an hour. Sometimes they get hour and a half, whatnot, but we know it's harder for people sometimes to listen to longer episodes, so mm -hmm. breaking it up is a little helpful. Yeah, so let's just jump in here, right? Let's get it. As I mentioned, Pamela Everett was is a lawyer and a law um, professor and formal journalist. She was 15 when she learned that her father's two sisters, Melba Marie Everett, who was nine, mm -hmm. and Madeline Everett, who was seven, were murder victims, along with their friend, Jeanette Stevens. Oh, there so are all three were murdered. Yes, there are okay. three victims here. Oh, well, duh. Jeez. Hello. Tragedy and trios. Wow. Where should am I, I at? Should I edit it out or just let the people know that <laughs> how we're stupid I am? <laughs> we're human too, and sometimes we don't think things through before we spit them into the microphone. I'm going to leave that up to you. <laughs> All right. And you know, if you don't listen back, you'll never know, you know? What, what I left for the people to hear. I might listen back to this one just to see what you decided. <laughs> oh, Lord. Pam's parents got divorced when she was a teen and she chose to live with her father. How she first initially heard about this case is actually from just kind of an ominous thing that her father had said. She did the whole, she's 15, she did the whole, I wanted to hang out with my boyfriend. So I told my dad that I was with a friend when I was really with my boyfriend. It was very innocent. We were watching a movie and fell asleep, but he came pounding on the door in a panic. 
and found me and I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So that night at the kitchen table, she was expecting that she was going to get scolded. There was going to be this big eruption. And instead he broke down in tears and said, I lost two sisters. I can't lose my daughter too, because he had been searching for her because she wasn't at the friend's house. So, so it probably had, triggered something. It, it most definitely did. And you will find that the family did not cope well with what happened to these young daughters, as I'm sure, I mean, I can't imagine. So oh, yeah. no judgment there, but there was definitely some some triggers, mm-hmm. like you said, of just... He couldn't it, find yeah. her and he yes. thought he'd lost her. Yep, and yeah. he was an active part of searching for his sisters. sisters. Okay. So she speculates that in those moments when he was searching for her too, it brought it all back oh, to the absolutely. forefront. absolutely. Yep, I can totally understand why he felt this way. Right. And so she really didn't, she was like, I have no idea what that means. Like, okay, 10 years later, uh, Pamela's father, Pearly, passes away. And it wasn't until later that she really went digging. Okay. And this is what inspired her to really write the book was just helping her, like letting everyone know what her family, who her family was. And to, as it seemed through the generation of her growing up, like everybody forgot about these two little girls. And so she doesn't want the world to forget them. Aww. And Jeanette Stevens, the third, their little friend that was with them as well. Mm-hmm. So this is a wonderful tribute to that. And I thought, okay, this will be a great case to cover because we'll help keep Melba keep and um, Madeline's and Jeanette's story memory. Going? Yeah, yeah, memory I alive. Like that. The Everett family is made up of six children. There was three boys and three girls ranging in age from 13 to 5 in 1937. Those were their ages. The family had just moved to Inglewood, California the year before, so in 1936, all the way from Maine. Now remember, this was the Depression era, so moves like this for for work and the promise of a better life was not uncommon. We're going to start on Friday, June 25th, 1937, Inglewood, California. Pamela Everett's father, Pearlie, was the oldest at 13, followed by Olive, who was 11, Merrill, he was 10, Melba Marie, 9, I love that name. I think it's so cute. It is cute. Madeline, seven, and Carl, five. As usual, on that Friday, June 25th, the children were playing in Sentinella Park, which was just across from the Everett home. Olive, Melba Marie, and Madeline were approached by a man that the children called Eddie the Sailor, and he showed the girls some tricks with a rope, which he had actually asked Olive to go uh, purchase, at it, like go get at a nearby store for him. Mm-hmm. Eddie the Sailor, and she did. Eddie the Sailor could also do tricks with his wrists and hands that others can't do, like fold his hands completely back on his wrists. He often entertained children that way. So literally the top of his hand could touch the top of his forearm. I had a classmate that used to do that, and it would just, it would creep me out. Oh my gosh. Like, ugh. Now, But good for him. Good for him. um, (laughs) Yes. Way to be a freak. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is, I mean, it sh- I'm sure it would. Congratulations on your flexibility, sir. Right. I can't put my leg up in the shower to shave my shin, but it's but go fine. Go ahead and put your hand backwards. Right. You know, Eddie the Sailor would come to this park and do these tricks and whatnot on this, this same day. I'm sorry. Forgive me for butting in, but is it wrong of me to think that Eddie the Sailor sounds a little creepy? I mean, I'm picturing, I and, and I, I get it, we're in a different time, mm-hmm. but Eddie yeah, the Sailor in, in today's world at the park is bending his hand back, I'm mm-hmm. like, no, no, right, we're right, not right, doing that. Right. 
1937. It was small town Englewood. It's okay. just, you know. Different. Yes, is definitely different. Okay. Wholesome. And this, I'll get into Sentinella Park. It actually sounded like a really great place, too. Oh, good. Okay. Be for kids. Forgive my judgments. Carry on. No, but I thought the same thing. And I was like, like Eddie the effing sailor, <laughs> of course. You in know? the park doing right. tricks. Like, hey, kids, go buy me these supplies and I'll <laughs> yes. wow you. So on this same day, Eddie the Sailor had asked the girls to go to the Baldwin Hills, which were nearby, and go rabbit hunting with him. He said he had a car, that he had a wife and a daughter. Mm-hmm. He promised each girl could come home with their own little bunny. Which, by the way, if anybody promises that they can, my children can bring home another thing for me to keep alive, I don't like you. I'm not going to be happy about no, that. No, we don't. No, please don't do that. I'm As a already, kid, though, I'd be like... Yes. yes. And these little girls were so excited, like, mm-hmm. we're going to go bunny hunting. We can bring home a bunny. Melba Marie begged her older sister, Olive, to let them all go rabbit hunting. Olive informed Eddie the sailor that their mother would not want them to go somewhere with a strange man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Olive. She's 11. He was insistent that they should go, and he offered to meet them the next morning and take them. Olive just ushered her little sisters away and said that they needed to get home. When they got home, they told their mother about Eddie the Sailor, and Mrs. Everett warned them about talking to strangers and reminded them to never go anywhere with a strange man. And if they ever needed help, they should find the closest adult, like a policeman or a fireman, for help. Melba literally said to her mother, I don't think that Olive should have talked to him at all or go anywhere with him, with Eddie, well, she was naming him, Eddie the Sailor. Mm -hmm. Just think, she might never come back. That is what Melba said. It turns out that this wasn't the first time that there had been issues in Sentinella Park with a strange man approaching the girls. This had also happened in December of the previous year, and Melba Marie was able to pull two other little girls away that he that this that a man was trying to lure the girls away from in the, this little spot in the park. They ran home and told their parents. This incident was reported to the police. But they were told by the police not to tell anybody about it in hopes that the man would try it again and they could catch him. Now, I know. Now, eventually, the girls were allowed to continue to play there, mostly because it was right across the street from their home. Their parents can kind of monitor. Yeah. And Sentinella Park is this wonderful place. There's a pool. There's grassy knolls. There's concession stand. There's... Mm. All kinds of... Sounds like a, a fun place to be. Yes. there's a, There was a popcorn stand. There was a mention of that. I mean, people are riding their bikes. It's sunny California. And this is cheap, cheap, entertain, free entertainment yeah. for kids in the Depression era. Absolutely. It sounds like it would be fun for anybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had me at popcorn stand. Yes. So <laughs> Me too. Um, yeah, I get it. I mean... There was a baseball diamond kids were always playing on the baseball diamond there were people everywhere which was another thing that kind of made parents feel like it was safe because there's kids and people everywhere gotcha. there's it's not, like a community area so it's not yes. like a sneaky like Mm-mm. desolate no not at all place gotcha the next morning saturday june 26 1937 the girls went to play in sentinella park as they always did uh melba marie and Madeline went with their neighbor jeanette stevens they were all in the park and olive was going to join them a little bit later, but she had to finish helping her mom clean the house. Now, they had a big family. They had six children. The older children had chores that they had to do. Mm-hmm. When they reached a certain age, everyone had chores they had to do. Olive was actually done with her chores, but she was that morning she was feeling really bad that her parents worked so hard and still had 
more chores to do. So she opted to stay home to help her mom more, which is just like the purest thing ever. Yeah, so nice of her. And so the three little girls run off. They're wearing these beautiful little sundresses. They took an old army blanket. They had spread it out under their favorite tree, which was a pepper tree in the park. And that was like their spot. So when if Olive was going to come later, she knew to go where look to go. under the pepper tree. That is, that's their spot. That's where their toys are going to be. They had a bag of toys. They had a thermos of milk and this, this army blanket. So like pure and right? wholesome. Right, and just picturing and it's you know 1937. Mm-hmm. Just picturing with the little dresses on, their little and shoes. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to the shoes. They had brought some toys, thermos of milk, like I said, and a Mickey Mouse book that was seven year old Madeline's favorite. They were later joined by two other girls who were also playing at the park that day, 10-year-old June uh, Hazley and 7-year-old Teresa Ziegler. There was also two other girls that had joined for a, a brief period of time, and they were actually playing. There was this huge drain pipe that came out kind of close to the tree, but it was so big that they could run in and out of it and, like, you know, say things into it, and their voice would echo. Oh, how and stuff. fun. Yeah. So they were playing in that for... Sometime, but eventually the other four girls, so June Hazley, Teresa Ziegler, and the other two girls had just taken off, and it was just the original trio that's left under the pepper tree playing. Around 11 a.m., Jeanette Stevens had went to the pool attendant and asked for some rope, saying that Eddie the Sailor wants to show us some rope tricks. He's been showing us some card tricks, but now he wants to show us some rope tricks. Mm-hmm. So the pool attendant had her assistant go ahead and get some rope and... She yeah. ran off happily. You're like, it's Eddie the sailor. Yeah. Get the rope. Yeah. Get the rope. He knows how to tie intricate knots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a sailor. They, so they gave her the rope. About 45 minutes later, 15-year-old Dorothy Wrights was sunning herself by the pool when she noticed a man looking at the children in the swimming pool. And a little while later, she sees that same man holding a little girl's hand. She remembered recalling that the little girl had the most beautiful blonde hair she had she'd ever seen and the man had whispered something into the little girl's ear that made her laugh and kind of scurry away towards the concession stand so we have that at about noon the three little girls went up to the check stand and asked the employee mr flynn to keep some items safe for them while they went rabbit hunting melba marie handed him a neatly folded blanket and shopping bag that had toys in it madeline kept her mickey mouse book and Melba kept the thermos of milk, and they ran away excitedly. As they were running away across little grassy knoll, Mrs. Craycroft was the swimming pool matron at the time. Very I nice. I like it. Just I do. once I want to be a matron of something. I am the swimming pool matron. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she was walking towards the pool across a large grass area when the three girls went running really fast by her. And she's like, my, my, girls, where are you going in such a hurry? And they exclaimed, we're going to hunt rabbits. We're going to hunt rabbits. They were headed towards the Baldwin Hills. They were very excited. Now, My anxiety is climbing. It should. Now, late that same Saturday afternoon, Vernon Aquila, a, he was an oil employee, saw some smoke rising from the Baldwin Hills. And since he's an oil employee, he knew that he was pretty worried that any out-of-control campfire could threaten the nearby oil fields. Like this, you know, this isn't good. So he went to, to investigate, and as he reached the end of a dirt road, he saw a man come down out of the hills near a ravine. 
This constipated look on my face is just me really it, getting, it like, really I don't uncomfortable want, for you. <laughs> it is. I, I don't will, want to hear what's next. You don't, but I'll trigger warning okay. I, because this is little kids yeah, before yeah. anything. Right Thank now you. we're just gathering information. Okay. This is just investigative information. So I can exhale momentarily. You can breathe for a bit. There won't be gory details yet. Thank so. you. I, it sounded like we were getting Mm-mm. I know. to no, it. This is investigative information that we know. Okay. Mm-hmm. He saw a man coming out of the Baldwin Hills near a ravine. The man said nothing and hopped into a 1929 or a 1930 Ford Roadster. Now, Vernon remembered that the car didn't have any fenders, but it did have a box on the back. So there's, there is a truck bed is what oh, we gotcha. would call it. You, know, okay. you can put stuff in. Mm-hmm. Next, we know that a man named Joseph Fields, who was a chauffeur, was driving that evening around 5.30 when he saw a school crossing guard, now they call them WPA, school crossing guards, walking from the direction of the Baldwin Hills. Now, he thought that it was really funny that a crossing guard would be that far from the school and so late on a Saturday, but he's in a crossing guard uniform, Mm -hmm. all right? So he's like, oh, that's weird. Then we have Mrs. Martha Rigby. She was at her home on Commercial Avenue, which is a direct route between Sentinella Park and the Baldwin Hills. When she thought that she saw a man run by, run by with blood on his clothes, and this was also about 5.30 p.m. So it's at 5.30, around the time that Mr. and Mrs. Everett were beginning to wonder where the girls were and why they were late for dinner and about to miss their favorite radio programs, which oh, is very yeah. out of character. Uh-huh. So Olive was sent by the Everett's and the Stevens family sent their oldest son Garth over to the park to retrieve the girls. And when they made mention of favorite radio radio programs, all I could think of was Ralphie on A Christmas Story, how him and and Randy sit in front of the radio. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's the 50s. So their their programs are about to come on and their parents are like, they missed dinner, that they never do that. So Olive and Garth go over. Olive goes right to the pepper tree. There is no sign of them. Garth couldn't find them. And by 6.30, Mr. Everett called the police department and reported the girls missing. The police, of course, are like, kids will be kids. Yes, everything's fine. We're going to have to wait 24 hours before they're considered missing. But the parents are like, I'm sorry, these are very young girls. Yes. And what are the chances that all three of them together are, you know, are missing? Like there, there's a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I believe Jeanette Stevens was eight. So- and 24 hours is a long time. Absolutely. Not to mention they're scared of the dark. Of course, their parents are like, listen, they're all in little dresses. They're cold. They're hungry. They haven't ate since breakfast this morning. There's, They're not three little boys who might be out looking for an adventure. This is different. The officers did confirm that it sounded suspicious. So at 845, they radioed everyone on staff and police started asking around. No one had seen them. In this day and age... People noticed when kids were out late. Mm-hmm. You were in your business. Those hoodlums, right? Yeah. Especially three little girls. Yeah. So they were reported missing at 630 and it was by 8, you know, eight o'clock that the parents are like, okay, now do you, you know, they're still not home. Do you see this as a problem? And the officers are like, yeah, this is a little bit more suspicious. So we'll go ahead and radio everybody um, in the, the city. Okay, the city departments. It's going to be hard to miss three little girls wandering around at this time of night now, mm-hmm. in this day, that day and age, you know. So at 10 o'clock, the police chief was called, and he agreed that this is an issue. So now they're calling the county, not just the city cops, as well, and putting everybody on the lookout for them. 
Now, it was at this point in the investigation that police learned all the information that I had just relayed to you about an, about the day in the park. Yeah. That's how they start doing interviews. They start talking to people, news, words getting out that these little girls are missing. So okay. that's so how, they've got all the details. Yep. And this is how Pamela was able to read the police investigation. That's how she's able to get that information to know. Give us kind of a timeline gotcha. of what's going on. At 11 p.m., a missing persons report was filed And within hours, there were all kinds of volunteers, police, rescue personnel, even Boy Scouts were on the ground looking for these girls everywhere. They worked until dawn and found nothing, not a trace. At morning, a statewide alert was issued. So now we've gone for the whole state of California to be on the lookout for them. No one stopped looking. Everyone was tired, but they kept searching into Sunday. Police started bringing in what they um, called known degenerates, or in other words, previous offenders, and questioned them and told them to keep themselves available. They all denied, you know, any involvement with the girls' disappearance. Uh, Searches spanned out into the Baldwin Hills, which unfortunately in 1924 was the cause uh, or was not the cause. The Baldwin Hills did not cause anything. I was going to say plot twist. No. In 1924, there was a case where two other little girls had been found dead and murdered. In the Baldwin Hills? Yes. And so Police Chief Campbell remembered that case and sent searchers there. There were planes. There were private pilots. There were Mounties. I mean, seriously, this community really, really came came together. together. Yeah. The Inglewood Police Department, the LAPD, the Sheriff's Department all pulled their officers to engage in search efforts, which how many, we don't see this happen a whole lot. So Chief Campbell knew right away that he was out of his league and that he needed help. And so instead of fighting for jurisdiction with places, Mm -hmm. he called everyone in and was like, we're going to work together to find these girls. Of course, Inglewood, California, the parents in Inglewood, California are horrified of the fact that three little girls have gone missing. They're holding their babies tight. They are finding excuses so that their kids don't need to go outside to play at the moment. Oh, yeah. That had to have been terrifying. Yes. And Sentinella Park was empty with the exception of some gawkers on Sunday Mm -hmm. because it would ordinarily be packed with families and kids and not now, not now that the news has hit. You know, that these three little girls went missing from there. Yeah, because someone's on the loose, obviously. Mm-hmm. If I'm sure everyone yep. was assuming the worst at that point in time. Absolutely. And Pamela actually talks about that. She was able to interview her Aunt Olive a little bit. There was only so much that Olive could, Olive could give her later on in life. Um, and when you read her book, she actually has a really remarkable story that Olive happened to tell her briefly a little bit of stuff literally three days before she died. Oh, really? Yeah, when she had started this research for this. So, wow. and, it, and it was so clear she, that it was difficult for her to even talk about what she did I talk bet. about. I bet. So she um, got the information from her aunt like days before mm-hmm. her, her aunt, aunt passed. passed. Away. Oh my gosh. Yep. So that's incredible. Um, I get it though. I have a, a grandma that grew up in the same era, and mm-hmm. you don't talk about things. No, right. You don't. And it's you keep it hush hush and you don't talk about things. And she like Pam had said that Mrs. Everett knew right away that the girls weren't coming home because this was not like them. They're mm-hmm. two little girls that were responsible, loved their family. And that's they, mom, right? Yes. I, I mean, I'm not surprised to hear right. that. Moms yeah. know. They do. 
and she she knew they were going to had to brace themselves to hear the worst worst. So Olive was questioned on Sunday, June 27th, carefully by the police. I mean, she was supposed to be in the park playing with the girls Mm -hmm. on Saturday, you know, and stayed home to clean. So this is what she told, what Olive was able to relay to the police. She said that Eddie the Sailor had a small black mustache. Was, oh, he just keeps getting creepier. Yes, I'm so sorry to be judging. When you add the small, <laughs> yes. and it's just like a the tiny little, one. Oh, gosh. Like, I can't even grow a full one. It's just... It's the little tips. Like Yeah, uh, it's literally just covering up your snot slide. <laughs> like, I know that's not the medical term for it, but that's what I call it. <laughs> so, yeah, it gives more of a creep factor. He was wearing... This is the description of Eddie the Sailor from Friday night okay. that Olive had come into contact with. All right. Small black mustache was wearing khaki work shirt and blue biblet overalls. So he's got, so he's, we got ourselves some overalls. Mm-hmm. We've got bibs. We've got a stash. <laughs> yep. All right. Continue. Yep. He was younger than her father, who was 42, and said that he lived on Manchester Boulevard. She was able, a, she was even able to give an exact address. Like this, Eddie the oh. Sailor had given his address okay. to Olive. Okay. She picked out a man from a lineup that they gave her some mug shots. And the man that she identified as Eddie the Sailor was Orthel Leroy Strong. Ortho Strong. Orthel Strong. The names back then, I'm telling you. <laughs> that is an interesting name. Now, so he just went by Eddie the Sailor as his, like, entertaining name for the um, kids? or Yeah, he had, uh, he had been a sailor, I believe. Maybe that's another guy. Oh, it gets a little confusing. Uh, it's in my notes. Give me a second. Don't ask too many questions. Okay. Just sit there and shut up. No. <laughs> Damn it, Amber. I will um, be mute from now on. But with a, would it, you know, with a name like Orthol, you'd be like, hi, I'm Orthol, or just be like, I'm Eddie the Sailor. I yeah. mean, it rolls off the tongue much better. Several people who were in the park that day confirmed Olive's identification of Orthol Strong as Eddie the Sailor and that he had been in the park that day. Some even, this is meaning Friday, <clears throat> some even recalled that he had a 1929 or so Ford Roadster with an open box on the back. One man came forward and said that he saw this vehicle parked in front of the park on the day that the three little girls went missing, and it had two, he had two little girls in the front and one on the, in the box on the back, and that the man looked similar to Orthel Strong's mugshot. Orthel had a record. Just six months earlier, he was intoxicated and had accosted a 14-year-old girl in the street. He was charged with rape, but pled guilty to a lesser charge and got probation. Oh. 1937. See? You see what I'm saying? We're we're talking. I, I knew there was something about Eddie. I'm not mm-hmm. saying, like, I obviously want to see how this unfolds, but he there was something mm-hmm. yeah. about him. Yeah, it's, it's creep factor number nine. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that number, but it felt right. So there it is. He was also arrested twice for drunkenness, which, all right, I'm not going to hold, you know, it's the depression. We were all drunk. He the sauce. He's been through a lot. Okay. All All right. right. All right. Accosting a 14-year-old girl? No. No, I'm not okay with. Being drunk in public? All right. Mm. That was me yesterday. No, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Um, Reporters were everywhere. The families were besides themselves. They were talking to report the family, like the Everett family and the Stevens family were talking to reporters, begging for the girls to come home. L.A. prosecutor took this moment 
to get on his soapbox and paint a picture of a man like Orthel Strong who had who was a habitual offender and got off on a lesser sentence, allowed to walk free. So, so he's like, do you see people as the prosecutor? This is what happens when we let people play things down. They just go back out gotcha. and repeat offend, which I don't disagree with. Mm-hmm. Can, you know, I, absolutely, so, L.A. prosecutor, you do the damn thing. But So they're honing in on him right away. Like, yes. They're like, Orthel is our... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's that's not helping the situation either, that we're just like so narrow minded. It's him. It's him. It's got to be him. Off with his head. Yes. You know, sort of thing. There were many other cases throughout the throughout the area of young girls who had been raped and strangled with ropes and with intricate knotting. He was suggesting that these cases were related and that it was time to make the person pay. So basically at the point at this point the hunt is on for Orthel Strong, even though they haven't found the girls yet. Oh, okay. At that point in yeah. time. This is still happening on Sunday. So like, they're still just like it's Orthel. Yes, we because, don't know where they are, but because Olive had picked him out of a uh, lineup and was like, This this is Eddie the Sailor. This is what Eddie the Sailor looks like. Like this is him. Mm-hmm. Okay. And people are like, Yeah, and I saw a truck just like what Eddie drives. Okay. We've got that information. It's gotta be him. Now I'm going to give you trigger warnings because we're going to get into how the girls were found. Okay. This is Monday, June 28th, and the search was continuing tirelessly. Tireless. Why do I type words I can't say? It's dumb. Don't do it, Charnel. I'm going to sell they them out tired. before I, I say them okay. from now on uh-huh. just because it's, it is hard. I type big big ones in there too sometimes, and I can't get them. Like when I'm typing it, I'm feeling smart. When yeah, I'm, I'm saying like... it, I overestimated <laughs> my abilities. Yep, same. Okay. In my head, it's flowing, it's mm-hmm. and then when it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, not so, not so much. Yeah, it's clear. I need help. <laughs> when a group of so it's June Monday, June 28th, the search was continuing, and a group of Boy Scouts that was led by 16 year old Scout leader uh, Frank Portune. And his group of eight boys from Troop 203. Don't tell me the scouts find them. Yes. They happened upon the bodies of the girls at the base of a ravine. There, now remember I had said that somebody saw a man walking out of the ravine, mm-hmm. a, a ravine in the Baldwin Hills, and get into a 1929 or 1934 roadster. Yes, I do remember so, that. There, there are three sets of shoes were there as well, and they were all lined up in a row. Eerie, mm-hmm. chills. Which is where Pamela got her title for her book, Little Shoes. Oh, and you'll see yeah. on the front cover of it. The shoes. 1937 era. I do think it is a picture of their actual shoes, but what how it was described in the book is that the three shoes are lined up, and two of them were facing the same way, two pairs. So four shoes were facing the same way, and then the third pair was facing the other way. But they were all lined up right next to each other. Oh, wow. And this is according to Little Shoes by Jeanette, by Pamela Everett, um, and trigger warning for descriptions of the girls. Okay. All Jean- right. Jeanette Stevens was found face down with one arm outstretched and the other arm under her head as if she was sleeping. She had a rope pulled so tightly around her neck that it was only several inches around at this point. Her neck, the width of her neck. Oh my gosh. And it had a complicated knot tied at the back of her head. Her dress was thrown over her head. Her bloody legs and torso were exposed. She was at a lower point in the ravine, at a low point in the ravine. And 75 feet up the ravine was Madeline. She was also face down with part of her body covered by dried brush and thick weeds. She had the same ligature around her neck 
same situation of, of being so tightly um, oh. around her neck that it was only a few inches. Then another 45 feet up the canyon was little Melba Marie. She was also face down, just like Madeline. She was partially covered with thick weeds and dried brush. Her hair was tossed forward and to the side. She had her right hand at her neck with a finger actually caught in the rope that was around her neck Mm. um, in a desperate attempt to make it stop. She had dried blood and mud on her face, and all three girls had been strangled with the same rope and horrifically and aggressively sexually abused. All right. Yeah. It's been a good night. I will see you later. <laughs> and scene. This We're is done. so, this hurts yeah. me so much. And the fact that Boy Scouts found them. And they, How I mean, traumatic they, for exactly, them. Exactly. And they immediately, now her older brother, Pearlie, their older brother, Pearlie, was a part of search rescues. He wasn't a part of this troop that found them, but he was a part of the search rescue. And him and his friends, all the neighbors and everything, you know, were out searching when word came I mean, word went down to all the search parties that they had been found. found them. Yeah. So he knew even before his parents did, before the police went. The fathers, too, um, Mr. C- Stevens and Mr. Everett, were also a part of the search efforts mm-hmm. as well. What those little girls must have went through, it just, it breaks my heart. Yes. And there, now I am, I'm going to give you another trigger warning to here because I need to give you some information about the sexual abuse so if you don't want to hear that, brace yourself and skip forward. But the reason that I need to do that is because later it's going to come back up in trial okay, pertaining to the man that they end up convicting for this. Okay. okay. I'm going to so, leave the room too. So Sure. Yeah. I'll sit here and talk to myself. To you. And yep. Yep. Okay. Um, Pro- carry on. Now, it, it was determined, I'm going to try to do this as soft as I possibly can, that whomever had done this. They had used their hands to literally rip the girls open on their reproductive parts to use their blood as lubricant for penile penetration. Okay. Now I give that detail because it's something that's brought up, like I said, in trial by the medical examiner as being a very calculating, sadistic, cruel action that takes forward thought and careful planning. I I want you to keep something like that in your mind when we start talking about who they convict for this. The other part that they can tell too by the medical examiner is that the children were raped post-mortem, which is another very specific type of profile, shall we say, okay? In a small way, perhaps it helps a little bit to know that physically... Honestly, it does help a little bit. Yeah, and they did not have to endure that in life. But who is this person? Right. Charnel is going to hold me for a minute, I and am. then we will resume. And this is where we pause. Okay, oh and gosh. we're back, and we cuddled. And I'm, I'm she's feeling now. a little bit. I nursed her. It's yes. fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's going to be okay We now. support breastfeeding <laughs> on this podcast. Absolutely. God gave us mammary glands, too. That might have been one of the most just painful things that I... Mm-hmm. I know. Listen to you. It was just so, that's just so horrible. And one thing that I want to note that Pam points out in her book is this case is actually one of the earliest recorded forensic sex offender profiles in the United States. The uh, forensic sex offender profile was completed by psychiatrist Joseph Porday, who was actually like hella interested in sex crimes, which... Okay. Like too we, interested, you mean, or just she like she did kind of indicate that he had a suspicious interest in it, but 
okay, he used his powers for good instead of evil, I guess. Okay, so he, he like, researched for the greater good. He did. Yep, but he, he did. just was like, oh, give me all of the sex crimes. Yeah. Okay. And what he, eh, the I profile that he comes up with is he tells the police to look for one man, probably in his 20s, a pedophile who might have been arrested um, before for, like, annoying children or something like that. He's a sexual sadist. He's very meticulous and at first is going to appear very remorseful because many sadists do after committing those types of crimes. And they may have a religious undertone and pray for forgiveness. This person has done this before, and it was done with deliberate and careful planning. The girls likely knew him and trusted him. So this is what the police, this is the information that the police are given of like, Uh you know, go forth and serve with this very specific profile, even though... We have no research yet on sexual profiling. This is one of the very first early cases. So I mean, there's the still hand serves orthal to them. Yes, I mean that, and that, and that's the thing. It like narrows things down maybe too much. Okay, because this is what they're looking for, and they're trusting this psychiatrist, even though they don't have. We don't have a lot of data to back all this up, and now we know criminal profiling is it's amazing, but it has taken decades to get where we are now, and we have a whole big computer from one of our first episodes. Actually, we talked about criminal profiling data systems that were originally created and how intricate and complicated they are. So now we have more than just human brains working on it. We have artificial intelligence as well, but. From right now, we're going with good old Joseph Forday. Yeah, yeah, or Padre. It's the best. It's the best they've got at the time. It is. So, yep, exactly. Now, just as heavily as the search was on for those girls, now the search is on for the perpetrator. Oh, sure. And I'm sure it comes as no surprise when I tell you that once the girls were found and the details of what happened to them were released, Inglewood was outraged. Oh my gosh. Mobs literally began to form. And I mean actual mobs of over 1,000 men strong formed outside of the police station, the city office building. They were calling for justice for what the press had dubbed the babes of Inglewood. They were even passing liquor bottles back and forth, which... Nothing says we want justice more than public intoxication (laughs) amongst old-timey men. If you're getting all these people together, I mean, you might as well bring the booze, too. Of course, booze has to be involved. It is not a mob without Without booze. Without booze. Straight out of the Mm -hmm. bottle. We literally have a Gaston situation on our hands where... Torches. and and pitchforks and go kill the beast. That is what is happening here in Inglewood, California. So I'm assuming... It's a blood hunt for Orthel at this point because everybody thinks it's him. Yes, right now it's a blood hunt for Orthel, and they—they they are the mob is so insane that the mob is almost making as many headlines as the three girls. Oh my gosh, I bet! And they are like oh, calling out horrible things to the police whenever they're bringing you know people in for questioning stuff like that. So not only is there a ton of pressure to bring in suspects, okay, but basically demand. For it oh. before actual riots broke out, there was the bean field. There's a lot of bean fields nearby, so they had a lot of bean field workers, and they called themselves the Bean Field Gang. Cool name, love bro. It. Like I love it. We're the Bean Field Gang, and they vowed to come to City Hall every night until the killer was found. And actually, Teresa Ziegler, remember she was playing with the girls on the day, um, yes, yeah, that they went missing. Her brother was one of the Beanfield gang members. Can I just take a moment to appreciate 
that they formed this gang and then they took the time to be like, hey to guys, what are we going to... A name. What do we, what call, do we ourselves? call ourselves? The Beanfield Gang. Got it. Because what do we have in common? <laughs> it sounds like something Beans. we would do. Yes. I just love that they took the time like, okay, we got to call ourselves something yeah, yeah. if we're going up there. We're going to be a real mob and we're going to demand, tell them we're going up there every night. Yes. Yeah. I just love that they took the time to do Probably this. Probably so they were quoted correctly in the newspapers, I'm thinking. They're like, Harold, get the fifth of whiskey. That's right. The bean gangs That's right. <laughs> headed up to. A fifth. Grab that barrel, Harold. <laughs> Roll it on down. The bean, bean gangs rolling in. That's right. So I love it. There were even rumors that the mob was digging a pit to burn the body once they hanged him from the girl's favorite pepper tree in Sentinel oh. Park. Oh, my gosh. So They this, want blood. Yes. This was the kind of chaos that the police were also dealing with. And I highlight it because I think that it really is a part of what happens here. It is sounds like pressure. Englewood is like... The seventh circle of hell right now. Mm-hmm. It basically, it definitely is, especially if you're a law enforcement Mobs. officer. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was <laughs> thinking that, like, what a time to be a police officer. Yeah. So let's get down to the manhunt, shall we? The hunt is on. Let's do it. The heat is on. So <laughs> I will. Cue, cue music in yeah, there. Yeah. So remember our prime suspect, Orthel Strong? I do. Well, he was found Tuesday, June 29th. So literally the day after the girls were found, they found them some ortho. Was he trying to hide? Nope. Oh, okay. No. The thing is, is he was just trying to work in a lumber camp that was seven miles from Olympia, Washington. And he had worked there several weeks straight, including the previous week when the girls were murdered. And his story was confirmed by time cards, witnesses, paycheck stubs, everything. So the man known to be Eddie the Sailor was 1,500 miles away from Sentinella Park on the day of the murders. It is not Orthel Strong. What? He wasn't there doing the... Um... He wasn't. He was not the one on Friday that talked to Olive. She picked him out of a lineup. She identified him as Eddie the Sailor because... In her mind, that's who it was. Well, so with... when you're given a lineup of mugshots and someone looks similar to someone else, and you're not given that other person's mugshot, yeah, you're, yeah. you're going to, you know statistically, and we know this through psychological research, we're going to pinpoint the faces, the face that is closest mm-hmm. to the man we remember. So he is Eddie the Sailor. Orthel Strong is Eddie the Sailor, but the problem is, is that there is someone else that looks like him that was in that park on Friday and Saturday. So the guy that asked about the rabbit hunting was not Eddie the Sailor, it was, was someone else. It was not Orthel Strong. It was not Orthel Strong. We'll get, hold on a minute. So the search now, it's Tuesday, and the search is continuing. Remember, their bodies were found on Monday. Mm-hmm. They were murdered Saturday. So police officer Elmer Cake, I know it. I'm going to leave it there. You know it. Elmer Cake. He picked up a child by the name of Mike uh, Quinarda, who had originally told police that a WPA crossing guard had been in the park on that day, on Saturday. Elmer was in an unmarked police car, and drove the boy by the school where there were three WPA crossing guards that were working. The boy was instructed to simply say the word yes if the man that he saw in the park on Saturday was in fact one of these men working. So he's like, we're in an unmarked car. I just want you to say yes if mm-hmm. you see this that man that you told me was in the park on Saturday. So here, the, here little Mike is in the back of this unmarked car. They drive by. And he says yes. 
So later they pull on and later Elmer Cake told the press that Mike had identified a man named Albert Dyer as the WPA crossing guard that was in the park that day. Okay. Okay. So he then returned um, to the crossing guards and he pulled up to Albert Dyer. And immediately Albert Dyer says, I never killed those girls. I never killed them. And then he pulled out a newspaper clipping from his pants pocket that showed him as part of the search party for the girls. Oh, okay. It turns out that Albert was was nearby. Albert. (laughs) I love that you don't know anything about the case. This is because this is exactly how our listeners are thinking too. Especially anybody who knows something about true crime, they're like, "Oh, you were a part of the search party, were ya?" Red Mm -hmm. flags pop when you immediately have your story lined up and a newspaper article to Mm -hmm. show that you're innocent on any given moment. Uh, Move along, Albert. So it turns out that Albert was nearby when the girls were discovered and offered to help carry the girls' bodies out as well, which he was not allowed to do. They didn't allow him to do that. Oh, my gosh. Um, It was also said by his wife later that he had asked her to keep a scrapbook of the media coverage about the girls. However, hold on. I see you ready to jump at me. Do you know? I mean, that makes me furious to know that he was amongst, which is not uncommon, amongst the search but wanted to be a part of carrying them out. Yeah. Well, mm. I need to tell you something else before you get too much of a panty twist here. Okay, because they are nodded. I know. I can see it hurting you <laughs> in your face. Um, Albert Dyer was 32, but he was mentally handicapped, which really wasn't understood at this time. Uh, okay. He, he was considered crazy but harmless. Uh, His wife was also lower functioning by today's standard and considered dull for her time. Dull? Dull. That's what they call it. She was quite dull and boring. Like, I just not, please don't let that be in my obituary. Let it say crazy bitch if it has to, but But not not dull. dull. Yeah. Please. Dyer was taken in for questioning. He was questioned for 30 minutes and he said he was working in his garden all afternoon, something that his wife and his neighbors could attest to. Dyer also did not own a vehicle, did not drive, he did not have children. Due to his limited mental capacity, he was only of about 8 to 10 years old mentally. Oh, wow. Police thought of him as a harmless nut that just had too much of an interest in the case, basically like the rest of the town in these moments. Like, the whole town is Fair obsessed enough. with this. I, right. I mean, I, I get it. And nothing like this had ever really happened before. And there was also a story of a barber. Albert had come in um, on Sunday morning, I believe it was, to get a haircut to the barber and was like, can you believe, you know, something has happened to these girls. I want to, can you get a quick cut in? I'm going to go be a part of helping search for them. And just like, can you imagine? And was just, was very empathetic Mm -hmm. and like, wow, this is really going on. This is really going on in our town. And for a capacity of an eight to 10 year old's mental state, it would be very profound right and just like oh and you you probably wouldn't think anything of somebody saying those things because everybody was probably saying those things like oh can you believe that this is happening these poor families i mean it's probably Mm -hmm. just general talk Mm -hmm. everywhere i agree don oliver was a fingerprint expert with the lapd and actually happened to be the girls the everett girls melba and madeline's uncle Oh, wow. So this is personal. Yep. Now, he was quoted in papers because, remember, this story is being told by Pam Everett, who is the niece of these girls, but knew nothing about this. So she's finding all this stuff in newspapers Mm -hmm. and and really had to go 
deep, deep diving. diving. It's not just like available on the internet. Yeah. You know? So he was quoted in papers as saying that there were clear fingerprints left at the scene and on the shoes. And it was just a matter of comparing them with the suspects. There were several suspects that were brought in for various reasons. I'll get back to the fingerprinting later. There was a 22-year-old Joe Strunk, who had been previously arrested for sexual misconduct with a 14-year-old, but he was fishing and out of town on the day of the crime, and it was confirmed. Then there's 24-year-old Don uh, Vasquez, who owned a Ford Roadster with missing fenders and a box on the back, and he even admitted to being in the Baldwin Hills area on the day of the crime, but denied any involvement with the girls. There was 20-year-old Homer West, he put up a fight when he was questioned by the police and said that he would only talk if a warrant was issued. He's, his fight was actually so big that his brother got involved and guns were drawn and he ended up being held in the station. Wow. Police station for questioning. He didn't want to talk about it no. at all. And there were some others as well, but nothing panned out. Mm-hmm. There wasn't one lead. Even another man named James Summit, who who was an ex-sailor and admitted to police that sometimes people call him Eddie the Sailor. What the fuck? Why are there so many people that go by Eddie the Sailor? Because I've never heard of it. Now we have multiple people here. But this dude's actually a sailor, so it makes sense, I guess. But his name is literally, I'm a sailor, so. But his name is James Summit. So, like, where's Eddie? What is with Eddie? Eddie? What's (laughs) happening? And I don't know. This isn't something that was mentioned in the book, and I forgot to look it up. I don't know if there was, like, a cartoon character or something, some sort of radio personality character, something that was Eddie the oh, Sailor maybe. at the time. I maybe. hadn't thought about that till right now when we're podcasting, but perhaps that's why, you know, I don't I don't know. But the problem with all these people is that they had sal- solid alibis. So, literally, we got nothing. But they started to hone in on two suspects. 30-year-old Charles A. Keefe, who had a Ford Roadster with missing fenders and a box on the back, and inside the car was a pair of khaki pants with what appeared to be blood on them and an abundance of telephone cord in his truck, and he lived near Sentinella Park and was in Inglewood the day of the kidnapping. They searched his home and found a blood-stained shirt. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay, that sounds pretty suspicious. Mm -hmm. Now there's Luther Dow. He was the other man that they were considering at this time. It's still only like Wednesday of the investigation. Mm-hmm. He was an ex-convict and was arrested with one of the girls' handkerchief and safe key in his pocket. Both items that the parents had identified as could have possibly belonged to their girls. Oh, what? Yep. Okay, that's really shady. Yep. He had scratches on his arms, his backside, and his stomach, and burrs on his clothing. This feels like a bad, like, game of Clue because right. there's so many. Now right. it's like, it's oh, Mr. it could be Green. him. Is it Mr. Plum? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two women from the park positively, positively identified Luther Dow as the man that they saw playing with the girls in the park that morning. However... Two other employees of the park said Dow was absolutely not the man that they saw in the park that morning. At this point, parts of the mob are going all day and all night, and they are literally climbing on the rooftops to get a view of any suspects that are being brought in. Oh, my gosh. Boy Scouts were even going through the streets of Inglewood, searching garages for Ford Roadsters. Like, this town is wild and y'all. This sounds like like this mob is just like day in, day out, boozing. Searching, uh-huh. <laughs> calling for justice of someone that they don't even like. If, if the police are bringing someone in, which wouldn't you be 
wouldn't that be the luck that you're not even being brought in to be questioned about this, but you just had to like go pay some back parking tickets or taxes oh, or something? And they're like, you. And you're, you're right, exactly. <laughs> we have a noose for you. Yes, you know, it's just not that would good. be my luck, like going in to pay a speeding that, ticket. Yeah, that that would be absolutely there get she her. Is. <laughs> yes. So basically, they go from having you know they bring these people in through the mob and. They go from having a few prime suspects to zero at this point, and the natives are getting really, really restless. Now, the two, those two people, Luther Dow and Charles A. Keefe, kind of seem like a little bit promising, like they could uh-huh. go somewhere. So now it's Thursday, July 1st, and it's 1937, remember. Ray Ward came forward to police to give them the name of Fred Gotzi, a man who had worked for him. Oh, Satan, is that the you? De- the demons are coming out. <laughs> Not now. <clears throat> Let me get the crucifix. We're recording. Thank you. Ray Ward is like, yeah, I got this man. He worked for me in 1933. He fits the description of the man in the park that day. His name's Fred Gatsy, you see? I bet he said it just like yeah, that, I think too. he did. I think so. And he's like, he has a sister who lives in Inglewood. He's like, he was cautious to say that he didn't want to waste the police's time, but... He's not trying to give a false tip or anything, but the image of this Fred Gotzi matching the description so closely to the man in the park was really nagging at him, so he decided to speak up. Also mentioned that Gotzi had an estranged wife, they were in the midst of a divorce, and they had a young daughter. Remember Olive said that Eddie the Sailor had a wife and a young daughter? Yes. Okay, in a, in a truck. Mm-hmm. That's that's kind of fitting, right? They go to his wife, his estranged wife's house. The police do. And she's like, yeah, I've not seen or heard from him since May when he sent a postcard from Nevada. And he's a part of the Cherokee Indian tribe. With He had dark skin. He's about 5'7 in build. He was an alcoholic and did barbiturates. On these occasions, he would become what his estranged wife described as inhumanely cruel, sadistic, and he would beat her. And he threatened to kill her at knife point. He was dishonorably discharged from the Navy, so he was a sailor, people. He was overset, and the reason he got discharged was for being oversexed. Oh, wow. He was picked up several times for molesting young girls, and he had just been paroled in January 1937. He was super good at card trick card tricks, remember? The yeah, girls the had tricks. said he was playing card, the, Eddie the Sailor was playing card tricks, but now he wanted a rope to play mm-hmm. rope tricks. Yes. And he was good at card tricks, tricks with his hands. And liked to entertain children with his with his tricks. She confirmed the the wife did confirm that he does visit his sister once in a while in Inglewood, California. And get this shit, y'all. People called him Freddy the Sailor. Oh my gosh, I can't with this. Because what? his name is Fred Gotzi and he was in the Navy. Okay. That shit makes Freddy, sense. Eddie. Yeah, that does make sense. Freddy the Sailor. There's a lot of sailors in this case. I know. That is California though. True. They're on a coast. The police obtained a photograph of him, and holy shit, he looks almost identical to Orthel Strong. Really? Uh huh. Man, this must have been a distinct look back in the day. I know. For tiny, many mustaches. <laughs> he's just, he's an average looking dude. Like, mm-hmm. he's got kind of dark skin. He is 5'7. He is, you know, slender in build. Tiny mustache. Mm-hmm. I just, it was trending then, I'm it, sure. Right. Absolutely. It's just like naming 
teenagers with mullets these days. A good stash was, you know, a signature look mm-hmm. for a while. Mm-hmm. Suspenders. I mean, I'm not knocking it. I am knocking the tiny stashes, but whatever. So yeah. So remember, Orthel Strong was 1,500 miles away. And so then it's like, well, how did Olive say that she was talking to him on Friday yeah. then? This is why. She could have been talking to Fred Gotzi. To Freddy. Freddy the sailor. Mm-hmm. The same witness witnesses who had identified Orthel Strong were all in agreement that Fred Gotzi looked even more like the person that they saw in the park that day playing with the girls. Oh, wow. The media ran Gotzi's photo, and the next day, two men came forward and said that the morning of the murders, Fred Gotzi had sold them a goat. So he was in the area. and he Yep, and he was driving a 1929 or 1930 Ford Roadster with a box on the back without fenders. He secured the goat in the back of the truck with rope. Now, this was a hot lead for the police because it turns out that there were animal hairs that matched that of a goat found on the ropes that were used to strangle the girls. Oh, boy. So shut the front door, people. We have ourselves a suspect. Oh, yes, we right? do. All right. I'm, I just want to say I am over all of these men playing card games with, with their ma- mustaches, calling themselves Eddie or Freddie the Sailor. I know. Entertaining children with tricks in a park without their parents yes. around. My oh. child ever asks to go see a magic show. But we know better now. You're right. This is the 30s where there were all kinds. I, know, I mean, I know. you know, the 30s through the 80s, there's all kinds of horrible stuff going down. It took us forever and, as yes. a society to realize that there's bad people out there and we should keep our kids safe. I totally get it. I do. And it, at the time, it was probably normal. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, I just Pamela didn't... talks about that in the book where she's like, I had to keep reminding myself. This is how this it was. This was normal. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just learned something new. I just didn't realize how many of these things were going on. Like, hey, kids, want to see a card track <laughs> hey, in hey, the hey, woods? Kids. Do, do, do. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, it's crazy. Right. But it was, well, it was the time. Even on The Simpsons, there's Krusty the Clown. <laughs> I mean. Props to Krusty. Right. <laughs> He's so creepy. God. So I think for, for episode one, this is where I'm going to leave you. We've got Freddy the Sailor, Fred Gatsy, really seems like a reasonable lead. Yeah, he does. And now the other two that was like, mm, you could have had a handkerchief and a key from the girl's safe in your pocket. We're just going to, we're done with yeah. you now. And the, and the other the guy with all the, the ca- blood, nah, yeah. we're done with you because we're hot on to Fred Gatsy. Oh, see, and I get it because he's a solid lead, but the other two were pretty mm-hmm. suspicious too. Like, Absolutely. what are you doing with these items in your pocket? Mm-hmm. And what are you doing with why bloody clothing, sir? Like, what happened to you? Yes, like, please explain. What's the rest of your life like? <laughs> that, Take that us that's through normal. a day in your schedule, <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah. Yep. So hang tight. I know it's Sunday for you right now. Tuesday morning, you will have part two. Okay, and then Amber will have her case on Thursday. Like, we're not jipping you, no. giving you extra content. So, yes, hang tight. Keep it curious. Reasonably curious, though. Stay alive, as we like to stay say. Stay alert, stay alive. That's right. And we will talk to you Tuesday morning to wrap this up. And it's a good one. You're going to like it. All right. Bye, guys. Toodaloo. I, I wanted to try something different. I like it. It works. It, it hit a little different, but it's, all right. <laughs> it works. We're going with that. All right, all right. And scene.